0: Romans chapter four is where we're going to be tonight um, and uh, we're here in this chapter and, and the the question that we're going to try to answer tonight is how much faith do i have have to have to be saved and, and there there are a few different things going on in this passage we're going to be picking up in verse twelve in a minute but uh, uh, but but what we're going to eventually come around to is this concept of how much faith a person really needs. To be saved, or maybe even a better way of phrasing it is what sort of faith is saving faith. Uh, That's what this passage is talking about in general, being saved by faith. That's what Paul has been talking about, really, the first uh, four chapters here. So here we are, Romans chapter 4, verse 12. Paul writes here, and he's speaking of Abraham, and he is also the father of the circumcised who. Not only are circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. We're going to stop right there for a moment because uh, that, that's a really powerful statement. Faith, uh, for the, if those who live by the law are heirs of the promise that he made, then faith has no value and the promise is worthless. That's a huge statement for every Jewish person reading this letter. And, and I do want to point out too, I want to just say, if you don't have your Bible actually open, uh, this is going to be a, a difficult study to follow because we're studying, we're looking at the very words that are used. That's why It's always good to have your Bible open, even if it's on a phone. It's okay if it's on your phone or something, so you can actually look at the words and correlate them with the things that you're hearing. The thing that we're, excuse me, the thing that we're talking about here is how Abraham was saved by faith. And then Paul comes with this hypothetical idea. He tosses it out in verses 13 and 14. That if Abraham was saved by the law instead of by faith, then verse fourteen, then faith has no value, or as other translations say, it, it, faith is made void. So, so, what does that mean? Well, if if you're saved by the law, then faith is not the issue at all. Why would why would first of all why would God make a promise conditional that's conditional on on obedience to laws? that would not be given for over 400 years. Uh, it, it's a matter of, if it's just a matter of doing good, then the truth is, then what you believe isn't going to factor in that much. Uh, it, it's just be obedient and do what's, what's good. However, if you fail in works, then faith makes sense. We need to know that law and promises are two completely different things. The law says this, the law says If you do such and such, then this will happen to you. The promise just says, hey, this will happen. Believe it. That's the promise. However, if the law is tied to the promise, then the promise is invalidated by the fact that I broke the law. Therefore, if that were true, then the promise could fail. Because if it's tied to the law and I don't keep the law, then I've lost the promise and, and, and if I can, I can lose those things that were promised if it's based on the law. That's kind of the point here. It's an, it's an insecurity that comes if you have a work works based salvation. Then he go he goes on to say the promise is worthless or some translations say the promise is made of no effect. That's because again, if works can undo the promise, then what's the point of the promise? It, it, I mean, it's not really a promise at all, is it? It's, it's more of a possibility to be earned. It's like, hey, uh, y- y- you might be saved. Uh, just keep trying. You might be saved. Uh, but uh, so, so if it's of the law, then what use is the promise? In fact, if it's of the law, then the question is, why was the promise ever even given in the first place? You know, why is there such an emphasis on promises and faith if salvation was going to come through the law, he's trying to help the Jewish people here see that it's not the law that saves you. In Galatians two twenty two twenty one, Paul puts it in very strong words. He said, I do not set aside the grace of God for if, so it's hypothetical, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That passage is so powerful. He says, if you can be saved, if you can gain your righteousness through your obedience, through being good enough, then then," he says Jesus' death is purposeless. Jesus' death is in vain. It's it's futile. It's it's pointless. If you can be saved through your obedience to the law, then all God should have done is say, hey, just be better. Do better. But Jesus died because we're not better and we can't be better and we don't obey the law. This promise that that Paul is talking about, and he keeps referring to the promise all throughout Romans chapter 4. Now, it's not just the gospel itself. It's it's the all-encompassing phrase referring to everything God tells Abraham back in Genesis 15. We looked at that last week, and, and all of those things that he promised that Abraham believes. Therefore, it has to do with God being Abraham's shield and, and reward and, and has to do with Abraham be believing in God's person as well as believing in the future promises for the descendants of Abraham concerning the land of Israel. All of this stuff is encompassed in it. Now, now, now by the way, that, that means that the land, the, the, the promised land, as we read in Genesis 15, read in Genesis 15 uh, last week, that if the land itself is promised to Israel and, and, and that promise that promise that is, is based on promise, not on law, then doesn't that mean that the promise is still valid? Doesn't that mean that even though they may be disqualified from entering into it at the moment, it's still a promise that's going to happen regardless of the rebellion, regardless of how many times they've backslidden, his promise is still going to be fulfilled. He's going to be faithful to Israel. And by the way, I say that because that should be encouraging to you concerning God's grace toward you personally, that he's not going to uh, walk away from his promise in your life just because you have failed. Thank God for that. Let's keep reading verse 15 because law brings wrath and where there is no law there is no transgression. Now now these are really powerful verses that are, <laughs> that are generally ignored, right? Uh, generally people read these verses and they like skim over them and they're like oh, oh okay that's, that's interesting. I have no idea what that means. Let me just go to another scripture that, that makes me feel good. And so h- however in understanding this This is a powerful thing. This might be puzzling, but let's read it again. Let's talk about it. Verse 15, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So how is it that law brings about wrath? Well, I think there's a scriptural illustration that helps us understand this. Turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, if you will. 2 Kings 22 in, in that chapter, there is a 3D real life illustration of how the law brings about wrath in the way that Paul means. And this is consistent uh, with the book of Romans itself. This is a story about King Josiah and it 's about his reign as as King of Israel, King Josiah was a good king, but he was following kings that were not so good, they were evil. The previous kings had ignored god 's law in fact, they had set it aside, and King Josiah wasn 't even aware of it. he had never even heard or read it he had never he didn't know anything about the law and what happens is that he's basically uh going about the process he 's got the the priest and, and the Levites or whoever it is, they is, they're, they're set up a fund to to clean up the temple and to beautify the temple. But in cleaning it up, while they're doing that, they find some scrolls. And they go back and they say, oh, the book of law was in there, King Josiah. And so he decides to have it read in his presence. So here we'll see what impact the law had on people who, who had ignored it or, or were unaware of it before. So beginning in uh, verse 10, 2 Kings twenty two ten says, Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, ah- 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 Ahikam son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micah, Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. So, so now he gives us command. He, he rips his clothes as a means to communicate. He says, I'm grieving. I'm humbling myself. Uh, this is not a happy moment. This is a terrible, sad moment. Th- that's what the tearing of the clothes symbolizes. And here's his command. Verse 13. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. That, that's the job of the priest, right? And, and go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger or wrath that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. The law brings about wrath. Now, now God's wrath was already there, but what happened was that Josiah became aware of how far they fell short of the book of the law because it had been read in his presence Uh, And this isn't the only time this happens with Israel. In the reading of the law uh, in Ezra, in Nehemiah's times, uh, they they have to tell the people. They read the law and the people hear it and they have to tell them, whoa, 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 slow down. Don't mourn. I, I mean, they read the law and he's like, don't mourn. This is a day of celebration. God is restoring us. But they became aware of the wrath of God that was had been poured out uh, there, there's this reading of the law in, in Daniel's time where he's going through and he perceives that the time of the regathering of Israel is coming you know the 70 uh, years of desolation and all that but it, but as it's happening as he's reading it hits him that it's the sin of the people of Israel that has brought on this Babylonian exile and he prays this long prayer of re- repentance why because the law brings out wrath how so it's simple. You'll understand it this way. Rules expose me as a rule breaker. Rules expose me as a rule breaker. A lot of us have played Monopoly in our lifetime as, as, as kids. If you've if you played Monopoly as a kid growing up, raise your hand. Let me, let me see your hand. Just about everybody in this place, um, the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, you, you just had a terrible childhood apparently. I don't know. But anyway, but I remember, I remember being a kid and we played all these times, you know, but, but I remember as a kid actually reading the rules of monopoly for the first time. And I suddenly realized, I read the rules and I suddenly realized we don't do this. We, we don't, we don't play by the, by these rules. And what happens is you read the rules and you get exposed as a rule breaker. you and so you're like, free parking doesn't even mean what, it, what I thought it means. There's no money involved in free parking. Or there's no rule about going around the board once before you buy anything. Why are we making up all these rules that don't even exist in the game? See, there are a lot of house rules that have made their way into Monopoly. And that's fine in the game of Monopoly. It's just a game. Play it however you want to play it. However, when it comes to following God, house rules are not allowed. Doing things your own way is not allowed. I come to God on His terms. I don't set the terms. He sets the terms. This is, this is not let's make a deal. You know, this is not Burger King. I'm showing my age. Anybody remember the old commercials, Burger King commercials, where they would sing, have it your way? Well, you know, that's not the way it is. You don't get it your way. You come to God and you follow His commands. They're, they're commands, right? Not, not suggestions. So they, they hear the law and it brings out their sin. In fact, the truth is, in our lives, you can't read the Bible without seeing your own sinfulness in its pages. I mean, you read it and you're like, oh, 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 man, I do that. That's me. That's me. Okay, Lord, you don't have to hit me between the eyes. In fact, you know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you read Matthew 5 through 7, he seems to be doing this to Israel. He goes out there and he teaches them and he shows them the law. And some people think that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus taking the law in the Old Testament and making it stricter or stronger, but that's not really true. If you read the Old Testament carefully, Jesus is just explaining how it really is. He's saying this is how things really are. In the, in the core of the universe and the way God created it to be. So he says, uh, God says, do not kill. And then Jesus later on says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. He's saying God does care about the heart. He's always cared about the heart. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. So th- this isn't a new idea, but rather he is restoring the truth of these things. So... To some who think that the law makes them righteous, what Paul is saying is, no, the law does not make you righteous. The law exposes you as a sinner. It'd be, be, listen, if I handed everybody in this room the driver's manual for Arkansas and had everybody read through it, probably every one of us would get to some part in there and we'd like, oh, oh, I've done that. Oh, just did that on the way to church tonight. You know, we would see that we'd all be like that because the law, the law brings about wrath because it makes us aware of the fact that I'm a lawbreaker and that I have earned the wrath of God. So, so turn to uh, Timothy, 1st Timothy chapter one, In 1st Timothy chapter one, it it talks about how we as Christians should, should use the law uh, in, in this new covenant in which we live under, under Christ. So how should I use this Old Testament law in my own witnessing or in my sharing of the gospel? 1 Timothy 1.8, those who who think they're righteous in the law, they they misunderstand its function. It doesn't show you your righteousness, it shows you your sin. But 1 Timothy 1.8 says this, We know that the law is good if, if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made... Not for the righteous, because the righteous person doesn't need any laws. They're already doing it all. You don't need any laws if you're perfect. But for lawbreakers, he says the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the godly and and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to convict the sinner of their sin. Now, now I have to mention this again because it's in this passage we're in, but, but but, there's a good reason to use the law and to use the word of God. It's a valid reason. It's a valid uh, purpose to point out, Other people's sins. Now, now I say that because, and we have to be careful because everybody's like, "Oh, you can't be judgmental." That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about trying to be self-righteous. But, but you're 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 trying to use the law properly to help people see that they have broken God's law, so they can come to a place of repentance. You know, now first, you've got to get the plank out of your eye first before you do it. You, you, you have to consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Paul said that in another place. You have to do it with an attitude of grace and love and kindness, but you, but you should do it. That, that's the proper use of the law. So, so that's what's meant by the law brings wrath. Now, the question now is in verse 15 where it says right after that, he says, And where there is no law... There is no transgression. Now here's a potentially serious problem because this is a verse uh, that some people could take and they could twist to their own destruction. They could say, well, does this mean that Romans is teaching that if I have no law, then I am not condemned, that I I have no sin, that if I'm a Gentile that doesn't have the law, then I'm, I'm simply not condemned? Is that what it's saying? Because, because it says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, that's not what it's saying, because we have to read it in context, uh, not just of the, of the immediate chapter, but in context of the whole book of Romans. And Paul already said in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that everyone has the law. It, it says this, indeed... When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So there's there's law written on their hearts, morality, their consciences consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. So when it says that there is no law, there uh, there is... Where, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's true. However, what Paul says is everyone has a law. Everyone has one. Everyone has a law. The, the, the Jews had the Old Testament law, and the rest of the world has the simple uh, revelation of moral conscience, the, the general revelation of God as opposed to the special revelation through Scripture. So, put it in another way, we are all moral agents. Uh, to be a moral agent means that you not, uh, not only know that something is good and something else is bad, but to be a moral agent means that you know you should do the good and you shouldn't do the bad. So you, you have this sense of obligation and you, you know that that's part uh, of the reality. Like uh, I should do that or I shouldn't do that. There is, a, there is an ought to to it. So you say where there is, you could say to what Paul is saying, you could say where there is no ought to, there is no transgression. I mean, think of it this way. Trees don't have wrath coming down on them. You know, if a tree falls down and lands on your neighbor's house, you and your neighbor, there's nobody standing around filled with anger at the tree. You don't put your hands on your hips going, how dare that tree fall there? That's not what you're doing because there's no ought to in that situation. However, if a drunk driver loses control and runs into the house, that's a different story because there is a moral compass there that they should have obeyed. So we all have that law. Law brings about wrath. Paul here from from every possible conceivable angle is disqualifying anyone from thinking that they can be saved by works by explaining the purpose of the law and explaining how Abraham was saved and so on. Let's continue. Verse 16, Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Now, there are a few really, really important things in this this verse. The, The promise, he says, comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. Now we need to understand faith and grace are coupled together in Scripture. They're 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 two sides of of the same coin. Uh, Just in the same way that works and law are two sides of one coin. So if you have law, it's going to be done by works, so the two sides of the same coin. If you have grace, it's going to be received by faith, two sides of the same coin. We're saved by faith that it may be according to grace salvation based on Roman Romans theology it's not that salvation includes faith it's that salvation is of faith by faith. F- faith is not just one ingredient among a whole list of things that you need that you, that you need to be saved it's not you have to have faith and love it's not that you have to have faith in whatever it's faith in God that you have to have in order to be saved. It's the two sides. If you want to receive the grace, you have to have faith. It's two sides of the same coin. However, there's something else here too. It says that it's by faith that it may be according to grace. Then he goes on and says, so that the promise may be guaranteed. See, if you're you're saved by works, then you're never assured of your salvation. You never know if you're really saved. However, if you're saved by grace through faith, then you can join with the rest of the church and sing blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. That word assurance. I'm assured. Why? How how do you know that you're saved? Are you sure that you're good enough to be saved? No, I am not sure. Actually, I am sure. I am sure that I'm not good enough, but I'm also sure that he is good enough. Because it's by faith. That's how I know. I know I'm saved because it's by faith. Faith, because it doesn't involve works, gives us a certainty of our salvation, a security in Christ. There's assurance there. For like, I like Philippians 1, 6. It says, being confident of this, that he, or God, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's his work that he began in me. See, if my salvation is my works, I'm going to fail. But because God cannot fail, it's his work in me, which gives me assurance of my salvation. It's his work that he began in me. I just believed. That's all I did. He's the one doing it. How do I know that I'm, I'm saved? Because he's saving me. Don't you think He's good enough to save you? Isn't He enough? Of course He is. This is really the, the only way you can be sure that you're saved. Now, now, I've met people who think that they're they're saved by faith plus works. They, you know, the sort of faith plus works theology that branches out in just about every religion in the world. And I've met people who are in the Christian church who are part of the fellowship of believers that struggle in this. And and those that struggle with it, they tend To waffle between two states of mind. First, it's either boasting, which Paul talked about already earlier in Romans, or insecurity, which is implied in this passage here. So they're going back and forth between boasting and insecurity. You see, the person who thinks that they're good enough to be saved... The thing is, while they're feeling good, while they're, when they're having a good day, they go around feeling secure in their salvation. And on those days, they look around and wonder why every, uh, wonder about everybody else, but, but not about themselves. They, I, I don't know about those people, but I know I'm for real. I'm solid because I'm living godly. They feel good and they're boasting about it. They're arrogant in their own salvation, yet... Yet those very same people in those quiet moments when they start thinking about and reflecting upon their own failures, now they become totally insecure. Because, I mean, even, even just the whole idea of we talk about wearing masks around here, that that, that, uh, that they'll put on that mask. Those are the people who put on masks to make sure they look good in front of other people. Then they're lying in bed at night and they know that, that what people saw is not the real me and they, they, they live in that insecurity. And I can tell you as a pastor that the same people about whom you would say, man, that person is so judgmental. They, they obviously disapprove of everybody else in the church just the way they operate in their lives. Yeah, I'm telling you, often it's those very same people who will go privately to their pastor and say, can you pray for me? I'm just not sure that I'm saved. See, the same thing that makes them boast makes them insecure. They're looking for their own, looking to their own works instead of looking to the, to the works of Christ. They're, they're looking at, to what they do instead of looking to what Christ has already done. It's just something that, that I've seen as, as people waffle back and forth. And they do it because they don't grasp the simple gospel of salvation by grace. I've even had people struggle with the, uh, the whole idea of salvation by grace. I've had people uh, on the verge of even surrendering their life to Christ, but they just said, it's, that's just too easy. It can't be that easy. Well, so then there's this really big idea. The same passage there. And you guys know this from Scripture, but you also know it from a song. If you've, if you've grown up in church, uh, if you're at least a little bit older, maybe they probably don't, haven't sung it for years now. But uh, you all know this, you know, the Father Abraham had many sons. Some of you are going to be cursing me because it's going to be going through your head for the rest of the night. Many sons had Father Abraham. and I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand. Yeah, see, we just goes on. But th- this is really taught very clearly here in this, in this passage in Romans. It says, in verse 16, it says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only, do you see this? All of his offspring, not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham he says he is the father of us all see there is a sense in which spiritually you as a christian are a descendant of abraham because you have the same faith that abraham had he's the first person in scripture who we see it clearly being said that he was saved by faith he, it said he believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. So he's sort of the spiritual head uh, uh, in a sense. Not, not headship like Christ is the head of the body, but head in, in the sense of example. So, so we're children of Abraham by faith because we share his faith. And so you have the Jewish people who are, who are part of the, the, the physical seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, but you have the, the family of, of faith of Abraham. He's my father in faith. And in a similar sense, you may have had a spiritual dad in your life, someone who took the role of becoming a father to you in your spiritual development. They've taken on this role. Abraham is an example for all of us. Now, I want to say this. This is, this is not, when you're talking about being uh, children of Abraham uh, because we share the same faith, this is not what, what's called replacement theology. Uh, th- this is not where we say Israel... God is done with you. Uh, now almost all of Abraham's descendants are Gentile. That, that, that's pretty much the idea of replacement theology that Christians or the church replaces Israel and God is finished with Israel. So get rid of Israel, and put the church in Israel place. Paul is not teaching that at all in here. This is what I would call grafting theology. That's the fancy word for it, grafting. And if you're if you've done any gardening or, or husbandry, you know what this is about. Grafting theology says that some of the branches have been broken off, but we, the Gentiles, the wild branches, have been grafted in. He hasn't thrown away the tree. He's made us part of it. So, so some of Israel has rebelled and they've lost and given up their faith and not follow the faith that Abraham had. However, God still has plans for Israel and, re- and will raise them back up and do awesome things. And we're, we're going to get into that in detail in chapters nine through 11. So I'm going to wait until we get there to talk more about that. But in verse 17, he says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, why is he quoting this in verse 17? Why did Paul suddenly just randomly say, uh, I have made you a father of many nations. Well, he's, he's, trying to t- he's trying to ground in the Old Testament this theology, this teaching that Abraham is a father, at least in some sense, to more than just Jewish people. So he, he's tying it together. He's saying he's, saying he's the father of those that, are, that have the same faith, not just a father of the, Israel, of the Israeli nation. So he's saying, ah, he's the father of the faith that you have, that many nations have, because the gospel has gone out to all nations. He's quoting from Genesis 17, 5. You know, can I just say this? In in reality, modern Christianity is actually far more faithful to the Old Testament than modern rabbinic Judaism. Some would may be very offended at that statement, but it's just, it's, it may think it's just an arrogant statement, but the fact is that rabbinic Judaism ignores large portions of the Old Testament that have to do with the sacrifices. I, I, I mean, there are no sacrifices. There, there is no atonement being offered today in Judaism. Uh, nowadays, there is a works-based righteousness. Th- there's been no temple since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., so they, they they said we've come up with a new version of Judaism, and that's what they've sort of been following over the past centuries. It's it's rabbinic Judaism, following the teaching of rabbis. That's why it's rabbinic. They're following the teaching of rabbis, not so much the teachings of the Word of God. Whereas as Christians, we say that we in Christ we have the fulfillment of these things in the Old Testament. So at least. What we believe and what we teach is tied into the Old Testament. And so it re- really far more Old Testament faithful than modern r- rabbinic Judaism. And And I'll say this, Jews who are messianic, those Jews who have received Christ are far more Jewish, relig- religiously speaking, than non-messianic Jews. Let's keep reading verse 17. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, this is what I would call a preacher's detour. Uh, th- th- this is not pure theology. He's been teaching theology, deep theology. And, and Paul just kind of weaves into the text throughout Romans these sort of these preaching moments. And this is definitely one of those. You can, you can hear the lofty language. You can, you can uh, sense the grandeur of the statement in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, now what's he talking about? Well, Abraham, who is the one being discussed in this passage, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that God is the one who can give life to the dead. Now, now, in the context, we've got to understand this is, this is a, a belief and a statement's in dec- direct relationship uh, to the fact that Abraham was an old man and that, as he said, Sarah's womb was dead. She was beyond the age of childbearing childbearing and yet god gives life to the dead so he's believing god for that but but this is also not just that it's also connected to salvation itself paul had had experienced this life from the dead he he knew what this was that's that's why he's so excited he knew he had been saved he had experienced the, the 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 saving grace of jesus christ his life had been transformed he was not the same man anymore and this is something that you need to know if you're going to minister to other people. You need to know the salvation of Christ. You need to know that God gives life to the dead. And Paul is passionate. He, he, you know, he can just bust into preaching mode because he's experienced the transforming work of Christ in his life. So, so he can just go into all this stuff with the boldness and courage that he does. And, but he, he says that God calls into being things that were not. Now, I think the most obvious and probably the best example of this is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, they didn't exist. It was, it was called into existence from non-existence. Suddenly, everything that we know existed. God does that. No one else can do that. Nothing else can do that. Genesis 1 Look, how about you think about this? Genesis 1 is really the foundation for all miracles that we hope for. All miracles that we pray for. And and it's good that Paul reminds us of this because we need to remember that God created all things and that gives us then the courage to believe that God can answer excuse me can answer the prayers about the things that I'm going through right now that are infinitely smaller than the universe and that are just minuscule compared to what God has already done And, and we realize that he created it all by his word alone which means that God's word is enough for any miracle I need in my life It's enough. He is powerful and effective even when he's simply speaking. Without doing anything, but just speaking, he can create where there is nothing. Abraham was told, You're going to have a son, and your descendants, which will be many, will inherit this very land. And, And Abraham realized this is the God that made all things. He's he's promised me things. I want you to hear this. Abraham's saying, he's promised me things that seem unrealistic for my life. But this is the God who made all things. He's promised. God has promised. Abraham realized that God's ability to fulfill his promises far outweighed his present circumstances. So he believes God. You're God. I believe you. I, I, I'm not going to limit you, God. You're not running out of money. You're, you're not out of power. You're not running out of creativity. No, you're going to do what you're going to do. And you know what? We need to know that because there are many promises in the scripture that, that we need to remember too. The Bible tells us in Romans eight twenty eight. I can't wait till we get to Romans 8 in this study, but he said, we know, not, not we hope, but we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, we know it. That's a promise. That's a promise from the God who created everything. Matthew six thirty three. Jesus said, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now you read it in context. These things that he's talking about are things like shelter, and food and clothing, everything you need for, uh, for life, stuff like that. And he says, he says if you seek my kingdom and you seek my righteousness first, and I will take care, of you, take care of you on these other issues. You sure, Lord? Are you sure you can do that? See, now you begin to realize that, that when faith, be, faith becomes very personal... It's not just about distant events from long ago. It's about my life. It's about my uncertain future. And it's about God's promises applying to me. There are other promises. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a very powerful one. Sometimes, uh, sometimes misused, sometimes misquoted. People use this verse sometimes to say, uh, God will never put anything on you that, you that you can't handle. That's not what the Bible says. There's a lot of life that I can't handle. That's why I need Jesus. But this is what he says. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. So I never have an excuse to sin because God has promised me I don't have to. There's a way out. Look at this promise in John 14. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now that is a... That was a powerful command for someone who, within 24 hours, was was going to be going to the cross. Speaking to his disciples. He's telling them not to let their hearts be troubled. I mean, you talk about troubling times. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in one little phrase, we have the cure for our troubles. Faith. Faith in his person, faith in him, not just faith in general. He says, believe me, believe in me, trust me. Don't let your hearts be troubled, just trust me. Boy, that's what we need to hear in our nation right now. Then he goes on and he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. That I uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise. We have to hold on to these promises. If we're honest, you, you should probably have if you're like me, you should probably have more confidence in God than you do right now. God created all things. He gives life to the dead. He speaks things into existence. And we should be uh, unflinchingly faith filled at the promises of God for us. That's that's who we should be. You know, uh, uh, well, let's just read on. Verse 18. It's a very interesting phrase. I got a lot to cover, so I'm just trying not to get sidetracked, trying not to chase too many rabbits. Verse 18. Uh, This is an interesting phrase. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. What does that mean? Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as had been said of him. Then he quotes from Genesis 15. This is when Abraham, God called, took Abraham outside of the tent and had him look up in the stars. And he said, so shall your offspring be. How did he against all hope in hope, believe. I, I think it goes this way. I, I think Abraham could not even perceive of how the promise could possibly be fulfilled, but he believed it anyway. You know, when, when I look for hope, I'm always thinking, uh, I'm looking for hope and, you know, a situation, whatever it might be. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, here's an avenue that this, this hope can be achieved. If this happens, then maybe that could happen. And, you know, I, I can see how it happens. And I'm, I, I'm really hoping that such and such will happen. But, I, but in the, all the while, I have in my mind a path that life could travel that would allow that to take place. However, to Abraham, honestly, it's like, what path of life could there possibly be for this promise to come true? Because we've already been down the path of life. It ain't happening. So, so in a sense, against all hope, in hope, uh, uh, he believed. He still had hope. He still had faith. And, and some people would hear that and they'd say, well, that's, that's just blind faith. I, I would say, no, that's, that's not blind faith. Because blind faith is faith for no reason. Faith for no reason. That's when somebody says, I just believe that if I jump off this building, then I'm going to fly. Well, why do you believe that? I don't know. I just do. Okay, that's blind faith. You have no reason to believe it, but you're going to believe it anyway. That would be blind faith. But this is different. Abraham's faith was not blind faith. It was not an irrational decision, but it was a deliberate choice not to place confidence in his senses or his experience, but instead to place his confidence in God and his word. Abraham had nothing to hang on to but God's promise, but that was enough for him. This is not blind faith, but it's God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Actually, I I like to rephrase that. Um, I think a better way to say that is God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, it's still settled when God says it. Is that blind faith? Not, Not if God said it. Not if God has spoken. If if God, the creator of the universe, has declared something to be true, you're a fool not to believe it. That That isn't blind faith. It, 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 is, it is true that you don't see the fulfillment of the thing yet. So, so there is something I don't see. So in that sense, there's a, a measure of blindness there. But I, I don't see the thing happening. But yet, I know that God has spoken. So I have a reason to to believe so uh, of course i'm going to have faith and trust him that's faith for good reason that is reasonable faith what we have is a reasonable faith we know god therefore knowing him it's reasonable to believe him i mean if you really think about it doubting god which which you know many of us here have experienced i'd wager that every one of us in this room has doubted god once or twice in our lives But if you think about it, doubting God is one of the craziest things you have ever done in your life. You ever thought about that? To doubt God? I mean, it's one thing to say, Lord, I'm just not sure if that's you speaking. I I get that. But it's a whole different thing to, to be like, Lord, this is you. I know this is you, but I just don't know if I can believe it. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? How can we possibly doubt the one who can just speak reality into existence who who cannot lie because it goes against his very nature and who gives life to the dead if this is true that that god can give life to the dead can bring uh, out of sarah's dead womb a living child then, then then shouldn't we have faith that god can take our friend who is dead in their trespasses and sin that we're witnessing to that we're sharing the gospel with that that god can take that person and turn them back into a living person spiritually speaking No matter how far they're gone. We we should have great confidence in our evangelism and our sharing the gospel. We should be confident in God who brings life to those who are dead. Then in verse 19, it says this. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He didn't deny reality. Some people try to tell you that faith is is saying, oh, this is not true. You know, you know, (laughs) you you could be you could be uh, have the, uh, you know, so sick that you're just about ready to pass out. And some people say, oh, don't confess that you're sick. Well, faith is not denying reality. That's not what it is. But but he faced the fact, but he didn't consider it. He didn't he he didn't use that as a limiting factor. I can say that I'm sick, but it doesn't mean that I can have faith and know that my sickness at the moment is not a limiting factor on God's ability to heal me. It wasn't like, okay, God, you've given me a great promise. Now let me just figure out how you're going to do it. Hmm. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He could not see the path for the fulfillment of the, prop, prop, of, of the promise. He just had to believe God. So instead of thinking, I have to figure it out, he just trusted the Lord to do it. Then verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't waver through unbelief. I think that's a very interesting phrase, unbelief. Is wavering. That's what it makes me do. I get on the fence. I wobble in my obedience. I wobble in my confidence. I become like a wave of the sea. Like James said in chapter one, he said, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Unbelief is wavering. Unbelief is is not rational. It, It is not reasonable. It's not justifiable, really, because if you know who he is, it makes no sense to not believe. But but listen, my heart goes out to the, to the wavering person because I've been there. Uh, It's not fun. It's not fun to be the wavering person. Nevertheless, in the end, it's about choosing to trust in God. If God said it, that settles it. I mean, how could it be any other way? This is just the basics of reality. If God speaks, there can be no argument. So then it's about choosing to trust God. Faith is not a feeling, something that, an emotion that overtakes us. Faith is about choosing to trust God. Now, now I think Abraham has given us an example, and Paul is highlighting this example of what saving faith looks like. Abraham believed, and he was saved. And then then the description is that it was promises about earth moving stuff. I, I mean, the deadness of the womb not even being considered Abraham trusts in God. This is a strong faith. The result of of all of this is that he was strengthened in faith. It says when, when we act upon trust, then our faith becomes stronger. When you say, I trust God, and then you act upon that trust, your faith will grow stronger. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says consider it pure joy my brothers when you face trials of many kinds I mean James had to be crazy to write that I mean they had to be reading that saying wait 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 wait." you said consider it joy when we have trials we don't usually put those two together do we He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's that process of our faith being tested that grows us up. And faced with the facts that would lead Abraham to doubt, he still maintained his trust in God. Abraham might have been weak. There were probably there were times when you, you, you read the story about, about how he, he, he tried to figure out a way to get the promise to come about. And, and, and he gave birth to, a, to an illegitimate child, really. And, 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 and he may have been weak, but because of his faith in God, he was strengthened. You know, I think there are many believers out there who are struggling with doubt. And, and because of this, they are, they are very weak believers. But here's, if that's you, I want you to hear me. If you will choose to trust God, to really, really trust the Lord, and trust Him in, in all that He says in His Word, just to believe Him, to make that decision, you will be strengthened in your faith. You'll be strengthened in so many ways in your life and and you you won't be like a wave blown and tossed by the wind anymore. You know, this is probably at the heart of a lot of stumbling believers' daily lives simply being what Jesus said of the disciples when he said, you of little faith. You may be suffering a hundred different spiritual ailments because of the lack of faith. But the good news is, as I said a moment ago, is that faith is a choice. You know, there's one story that really encouraged me personally. It's the story of, when, of the man uh, with a demon-possessed son who came to Jesus asking for deliverance. And, and, and Jesus, if you remember in the story, he looked at him and said, all things are possible for those who believe. And, and this man looks at him and he responds and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. His son, listen, his son had been sick for so long, had been, had been struggling with this demon possession for so long, and, and no one had been able to help him. He, he didn't want to get his hopes up and then have them dashed again. He wanted to believe, but maybe he was just afraid to believe. Unbelief coexisting with the desire to believe. That's not a fun place to be, but he made a decision between the two, and he said, Lord, I believe. I choose to believe. Help me with this unbelief. Then Jesus brought deliverance to that boy, which means what? Good enough. Good enough. If that's all you'll do, if you'll come to God with that, I believe, help me with my unbelief. That's good enough. Let me be a work in progress, Lord, I, but, but I want to grow in faith. I, I will choose to believe you with whatever I have. I think that's a beautiful thing. Then verse 23, it says, the words, it was credited to him. Were written not for him alone. This is very interesting, verse twenty-four, but also for us. Now there is a discipline called hermeneutics. I know Pastor Jason's heard that word. Anybody ever besides him ever heard the word hermeneutics? Couple of you. Uh, but, but it's it basically hermeneutics is the art and science of, of biblical interpretation. That's hermeneutics. Now, homiletics is a different word, similar as a study of how to preach and how to deliver messages. And there are many people who would say that I have obviously not paid any attention to homiletics. But, but hermeneutics is, is how you interpret the Bible. And, and there are rules of hermeneutics. However, I've got to tell you, I've got to be honest with you, there's one rule of hermeneutics that I, I don't know that I entirely agree with. Yeah, I know. I know this sounds really arrogant. Who are you to say this? But, but one of the rules of hermeneutics is is this, and I know what I know what it means, and I understand what, where they're coming from. But it's, the rule says you cannot read the text to mean anything that it didn't mean to the original audience, or to mean something that it didn't mean to the original author, something that the author didn't intend. Now, I've run into that rule of hermeneutics, and here's here's where here's where I struggle with it, because I say. But God's the author. But but God's the author. Are you telling me that you don't think the Holy Spirit could have had something in mind beyond what the author was aware of? I mean, Daniel, in his writings, there are times when he writes things down and he's like, I don't even know what this means. And the Lord's like, ah, just just seal it up. It's not for you anyway. Daniel 12, you know, just seal it up. It's for uh, generations later. Don't worry about it, Daniel. The true author of Scripture is God, the Holy Spirit, who has in mind some things for us. In fact, there are other places in the New Testament where it says, talking about Old Testament writings, it says these things were written as an example. They were were written for us. They had us in mind when they were written. So so let's read it again in verse 23, in the beginning of 24, what it says. It says, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us. So from Paul's perspective, listen, Genesis, from his perspective, is 1,400 years old. And he's, he's telling his audience, he's saying, this was what was written about Abraham was written for the Romans of Paul's day. That the author had them in mind because the author is the Holy Spirit. The author, listen, hear this. The Holy Spirit had us in mind as well. I should read the Scripture knowing that God had me in mind when it was written. Now that doesn't mean I pretend to be Israel. Doesn't mean that I pull things out of context and apply them in screwy ways that are just not true. Doesn't mean that I rip Bible verses out of the out of context and just casually apply them to my wife, my life, not my wife, my life anyway, anyway that I that I like. I need to have good hermeneutics, I, I, I rec- but I recognize through all of that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. Not Moses, not jo- Isaiah, not Daniel, not Paul, but the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand what that law, the rule that we were talking about earlier, it's, a, it's about you can't just twist it and make it mean something else. Uh, but, but, but I'm saying that there are times when the application, the Holy Spirit has an application for us. And so Paul applies it. Paul takes a passage that was 1,400 years old in his day and 3,400 years old from our perspective. And he says in verse 24, speaking of this, he said, to whom God will credit. Again, that's that idea of impute or, 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 or putting into our account. He will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Guess what? Guess what? Just like Abraham was given righteousness by faith, you will receive righteousness by faith when you believe in God who raised up Jesus from the dead. That's what he says. Verse 25, he said, He was delivered over to death for our sins. Why did he die? Because of our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. So Jesus' resurrection assures us of our salvation because he lives we live my confidence is in his resurrection how do i know i will rise because he arose so so to conclude we asked how much faith do you have to have to be saved and i think james chapter 2 is a fantastic description of saving faith james 2 is written to the casual believer who needs a kick in the pants because they're like i'm good i got my fire insurance i believe But there are no works to back up his professed faith, which leads us to realize that his faith is actually dead. It's a dead faith. Hear hear this. Works don't save, but faith that saves will work. Works don't save, but faith that saves will work. It will work. It will. It will work out in 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 everyday life. This faith that Abraham has is a bold faith. It's a strong faith that results later in his life in obedience, extreme obedience to the, even to the point of of taking his one and only son, the one that the promise is supposed to come through up to the mountain to sacrifice him uh, to God, because that's what God said to do. And later in Hebrews, we find out, you, you talk about Abraham believed that he was the God who could, who could uh, raise, uh, bring life, he could raise the dead to life. Well, Hebrews, we find out that Abraham, when he took Isaac up up there, he fully believed that he was going to sacrifice him, but he also believed that Isaac was the the child the promise was going to come through. And you read the book of Hebrews, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see it says that Abraham believed that God was, was going to raise Isaac from the dead. This is the faith he had. It's a strong faith, but faith that saves is not ultimately faith in what God does. It's in who God is. And that's the context over and over again in Romans. It's not just faith in what God does. See, it's not faith that God raised Jesus. It's faith in Him who raised Jesus. So so my faith is in the person of God. I believe you, God. I trust in you. I'm confident in you. Not just these facts, but you. You're the one I trust. And and that's a different kind of faith. there's There's a courage and a confidence that comes from believing not only what God says, but believing who God is. Believing in his character, in his goodness, in his power, in his grace. Hopefully you will be strengthened in faith. Hopefully I will be strengthened in faith. It's the one commodity as a believer that we cannot live without. You have to trust. You have to choose to trust. It's a decision you make. And the more you make that decision, the stronger it grows. Now next week we're gonna dig into Romans chapter five. Romans five is gonna go deep in asking us to take this saving faith and and apply it into our daily struggles in life. It's gonna take the same faith that saves you and then ask you to apply it to your daily struggles and your daily trials. It is golden. It is beautiful. I encourage you to read it ahead of time and and give it some some thought and some prayer. But would you bow your head and let's just pray together. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, God, that you've revealed to us how we can be saved, but also you've given us an example of faith that we should follow. Help us to think upon your promises and, and not to waver in unbelief. To not think about how they can be accomplished, to not worry about all the details of how things can happen from our own perspective. But God, just to have faith in you and say, Lord, it's not about what you can do. It's that I know who you are. Therefore, I am not worried about what, what needs to happen. Let's just, Lord, I just pray that you just help us to have that kind of faith. The faith that, that, that works, a faith that, that is active, a faith that people see a faith that makes a difference not, in, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around us. And I thank you for the saving faith that you give to us, that you save us by faith, by grace, through faith. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.